Some of you may remember that in January of this year, I think it was January 2nd, I preached a sermon uh, about redeeming the time. It was uh, since we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we now redeem the time. We want to redeem the time for him. And if you were here for that sermon, if you heard that sermon, you may have felt like that sermon ended somewhat abruptly. If you felt that way, you were right to feel that way because it did end somewhat abruptly. See, the plan was at that time, we weren't sure how long Mark was going to be out as he was regaining his strength, and we weren't sure how long it would take him to recover. And so Greg and I were going to sort of rotate preaching for a while. And so the plan was for me to preach again January the 16th if Mark wasn't able to come back. So I thought, I'll just split this sermon on redeeming the time into two parts. Well, Mark was able to recover fairly quickly, and he got to preach on the 16th, which was great. I didn't have to preach on the 16th, but some people came to me and asked me, you know, when are we going to get part two? Because they felt like it was a dot, dot, dot in their notes. When, when are we going to get part two? Well, the answer to that question is part two is today. Uh, uh, so this is going to be basically practical ways that we can redeem the time. That's the idea from this sermon. But before uh, we get into the practical ways that we can redeem the time, which I'm going to re-go over the four ways that I mentioned last time, and then we'll focus in on one of those, and I'll give you a few more ways. But I wanted to start here in Ephesians 2 because I want to set sort of the, the gospel foundation, the, the motivation as to why we, we want to redeem the time. So let me read from Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, and 11 and 12, and we'll come back and get the good news in in a moment. But Ephesians 2, please hear this public reading of God's Word. <clears throat> and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then skip down to verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to consider this important topic of redeeming the time, I pray that you would remind us afresh of the importance of time, that we would see again the preciousness of time. And I pray that we would leave here wanting to, by your grace, redeem the brief bit of time that you've given us on this earth, that we would redeem it by your grace, that we would use it for the best and highest purposes. And Father, as we reflect a little bit on the bad news and then ultimately the good news here in Ephesians 2, I pray that we would be gripped by this remembrance of our condition apart from Christ. May we be stirred by this remembrance, and may we be stirred by your grace in saving us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start in verses 11 and 12. In verses 11 and 12, Paul tells us twice, he says, to remember. Beginning of verse 11, he says, therefore, remember. And then again in verse 12, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So twice, Paul says for us to remember. He wants us to remember something. My question would be, why? Why does Paul say twice over to remember this? Why does he want us to remember that there was a time when we were without hope and without God in the world? Why does he want us to remember this? I think there's at least two reasons why why he wants us to remember this. I think, number one, he wants us to remember this because we are prone to forget. We're so prone in the Christian life to forget. 
So we need to be reminded over and over again to remember because we're prone to forget. We're prone to forget the plight from which we have been saved. We're prone to forget God's grace in saving us. So we need to be told over and over again to remember. I think about Peter. I think in Second Peter, he says, as long as I'm in this body, I intend to stir you up by way of reminder. He's just going to keep reminding as long as he's alive. He's going to keep reminding his people of certain things. And so we need to be told to remember because we're prone to forget. But I think there's a second element to this, why Paul wants us to remember this. I think Paul wants us to remember this because when we remember, I mean really remember and dwell on the plight from which we have been saved, this will serve as sort of kindling wood to the soul. This will begin to stir affection for God. This will stir praise and adoration and thanksgiving to God for saving us from such a plight. So it's sort of like a heating element to the soul when we remember. Secondly, I would say, what does Paul mean when he tells us twice to remember? What does he mean for us to do when he says, remember? Well, one pastor said it like this, surely Paul means let it grip you. Let the memory seize you and move you. Feel the memory. Feel the plight from which you have been saved. We want to remember the horror of the reality from which we have been saved. He means to know it, feel it, be gripped by this memory of what we have been saved from. And my question would be, how often, I mean, if we're honest, how often do we spend time remembering the plight from which we have been saved? My guess is not very often, and so we need to be told to remember this. We need to remember this. I became a Christian probably around the age of 23, and soon after my conversion, maybe a year or so after my conversion, I was reading a book uh, by St. Augustine called The Confessions, and many of you are maybe familiar with St. Augustine's book, or you may know his life. Uh, he lived a very sinful life before he became a Christian. He was sexually immoral and all kinds of other sins in his life. I think he became a Christian at age 32. He had a godly mother, Monica, who was praying for him, praying for him all those years until finally he came to faith in Christ. Powerful conversion story. If you've never uh, read it, you can look it up online. Powerful conversion story at 32. But he lived a very sinful life. And in the book, The Confessions, he sort of tells about his sinful life. And at one point, as I was reading this as a relatively new Christian, he said something like this. I'm paraphrasing this, but he said this line in that book that sort of just stopped me in my tracks. He talked about being very sick as a non-Christian. He got really sick, and he almost died as a non-Christian. And this is, this is what he said, something like this. He said, had I died... As a non-Christian, had I died, he said, surely I would have gone where my sins deserved. Surely I would have gone where my sins deserved. I remember just being stopped in my tracks. I had to close the book. If my memory is right, I closed the book. And I remember thinking about this statement from St. Augustine for multiple days as a relative new Christian. And what was I thinking about? Well, I was thinking back to 20-plus years of rebellion against God in my own life and certainly probably thinking about the patience of God in, in sparing me all those years. But I was thinking back to how I could have died in various ways. I mean, God could have stopped my heart at any moment in time, but I was thinking about one specific instance in my life. I think it was probably about 19 years of age when I really could have died. And that's the instance that kept popping into my head. And I was thinking, had I died as a 19-year-old kid, surely I would have gone where my sins deserve. Well, where would that have been? Well, I would have stood before God clothed in my own righteousness. That is a terrifying thought, to stand before God in my own filthy righteousness. That's what would have happened. I would have been standing before God in my own righteousness. And what would I have said to God? I don't know for sure, but I probably would have said, well, I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up in church. I've went on missions, conferences, and all kinds of retreats. I prayed in high school pretty consistently. And Jesus would have looked at me and said, depart from me, for I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. And I would have been picked up and thrown into conscious eternal torment in hell. You see, when we remember and we are gripped by this remembrance, it stirs gratitude and affection and praise to God for saving us from such a plight. So we need to remember what God has saved us from. But we also need to remember the good news. So let me read verses 4 
to 10. We need to remember the good news as well. 4 to 10. These wonderful two words in, in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you're a Christian here today, this in Ephesians 2, this is your conversion story. This is my conversion story. This is how we came to saving faith. We were dead in sins, and then God in His mercy made us alive together with Christ. There's a Puritan by the name of John Eliot uh, who came to the United States when it was the colonies in the 1600s. He was a pastor. He uh, learned the Algonquin Indian language. He translated the Bible, the New Testament, into the Algonquin Indian language. I think it's the first published Bible in the colonies in 1663. Uh, it's called the Eliot Bible. He translated it. And uh, Lillian and I were watching this thing with old uh, Bibles and stuff, and the, the guy had an actual Elliot Bible slip from the Elliot Bible. So cool, this, this little slip of paper from the Elliot Bible. Fantastic. But he became a Christian in the UK before he went to the colonies. He grew up in a Christian home. Both of his parents, he lost both of them before he turned 18. When he was 18 years old, he became a Christian. He was living with another Puritan family, Thomas Hooker and his family. So it was in this house that he became a Christian. This is the way he describes his conversion. Again, this is our conversion, just maybe a different location. He said, for here, at Thomas Hooker's house, for here, the Lord said to my dead soul, live live, and through the grace of God, I do live and shall live forevermore. This is how we became a Christian. We were dead in sins, and God came and said to our dead souls, live, and we came to saving faith. We were born again. Maybe you were really young, and you came under the conviction of sin, and you talked to a relative or a parent or a grandparent, and you went to them and said, I know I'm a sinner. What, what do I do? And maybe they simply walked the gospel through with you, and they knelt with you, and they prayed with you, and it was there as a young child that God said to your dead soul, live, and you lived, and you shall live forevermore. Maybe you're a little bit older. You're on a retreat. It reminds me of a pastor who was off on a retreat when he was about 12 years old. And he said the, the teacher of that retreat decided to go through the, the book of Romans. And somewhere through the book of Romans, he came under deep conviction of sin. He was on a top bunk and he said he could not sleep. It was like 3 a.m. He crawled down from the top bunk and he said he got down on his knees in the middle of that room there. And he cried out to God for deliverance from his sins. It was there that God said to his dead soul, live. He said he, when he gets to heaven, he wants to kiss that, that teacher's feet for going through Romans to 12-year-old boys. Or maybe you were older and you were reading the Gospels. I think of Sam reading through the Gospel. And maybe you're reading through the Gospels and all of a sudden it's like scales fell from your eyes and you saw for the first time the glory of Jesus and tears streamed down your face. And God said to your dead soul, live. And you lived. Or maybe you, it was like me and you, you don't know the day. But all of a sudden you came to the realization that something incredible has happened to me. You have a hunger for the Bible. You have a desire to talk about the things of God and listen to sermons and talk about Jesus. All of a sudden you're like, what has happened well, God had said to your dead soul, live, and you came to faith in Christ. There's a pastor named Ian Hamilton from Scotland. Uh, I think he's a pastor now in the UK, but he grew up in Scotland. He did not grow up in a Christian home. He's had no background with Christianity whatsoever. He doesn't remember a Bible even being in the home. He never even opened a Bible as far as he knows. He had no contact with any other genuine Christian until he was 17. He was in school. And he met this kid who was a year ahead of him in school who was probably 18. And he said this was his first encounter with what he called living Christianity. And there was something about this young man who was 18 probably that drew him to this individual who was a genuine Christian. Something different about this guy that drew Ian Hamilton to him. Well, they developed a friendship. And then providentially, one Saturday evening, they were in uh, Scotland, in a city in Scotland, and they bumped into each other. And this other friend of his uh, invited 
Ian Hamilton to come to a Bible study the next day, which was going to be Sunday afternoon. He's going to invite him to this Bible study. And for whatever reason, Ian Hamilton agreed to go to this Bible study. So he showed up at this Bible study. It was a rainy day in Scotland. There was about 30 other people there, mainly late teens and early 20s. And when he got there, he said all he cared about was he was going to check out who are the girls that are here. That's all he cared about when he got there. What are the girls that are here? Well, the guy who was teaching that Bible study found out that there was a couple of non-Christians that were going to be there. So he scrapped his original talk, and he decided to talk about John 3.16. And again, Ian Hamilton, no background in Christianity, never heard John 3.16 at all. And this guy begins to unpack John 3.16. So he's hearing John 3.16, for God so loved the world, for the first time. And he said, as he sat there listening to this man talk about John 3.16, he said he was bewildered by what he was hearing. He was bewildered by what he was hearing. He was thinking, why would God love me? I don't love God. Why in the world would he love me? And he said, next thing you know, this guy is saying that God sent his son to die for our sins. And he was like, why in the world would God do that for me? Why would he send his son to die for me? And the more the man spoke on John 3, 16, he said, the more he felt overwhelmed by what he was hearing. He said he was about to cry. Tears were trying to force their way out of his eyes. But he said he could not cry in front of his peers like that. He couldn't, but he was fighting back tears as he listened to John 3.16. After the man finished the talk, he said his mother had taught him to be polite, so he went up to the man and thanked him for the talk. And the man realized that Ian Hamilton looked troubled. And so he said, would he, would he like to come back sometime and talk further? He said he would. And over the next several minutes, this man faithfully just unpacked the gospel message for Ian Hamilton. At the end of the gospel presentation, he said to Ian Hamilton, he said, would you like to become a Christian. And he said he would. And they knelt in prayer. Again, Ian Hamilton, no background in Christianity, hardly knew about prayer. He said he stumbled through a prayer, but he said this. He said, as soon as he finished praying, he said, I knew I was not the same kid who came in that night. I knew everything was different. He said he almost skipped home as he took the buses home. He was filled with such joy at the new birth that just happened. But this is what he says. He said, so it turns out a wet November day in Scotland, in 1966, God had mercy on me and opened my eyes to see and gave me ears to hear. So if you're a Christian here today, there's a point in your past where God opened your eyes to see, gave you ears to hear, and you have been born again. And now it's in light of this truth, in light of the gospel, in light of the plight for which we have been saved, we now want to, we get to redeem the time for him. So Ephesians 5, let me read verses 15 and 16 before we jump to another book of the Bible. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, these are the foundational verses for these two sermons. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Ephesians 5, 15. Look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So we want to, I love those two words at the beginning of 515, look carefully. We want to look carefully how we walk. One pastor said it means we don't want to coast. We don't want to be passive in the way we use our time. We want to look carefully. He said, look carefully means we want to think, we want to plan, we want to pray how best to use our time. Why? Because time is precious. As Jerry mentioned earlier, time is precious. If you remember my last sermon, the reason why time is precious is because time is short. Time cannot be recovered. You can't go back in time. If you wasted yesterday, you can't go and relive it, so time can't be recovered. The ripple effect of how we use our time, our choices have a reality and history. They impact all those around us, so we need to remember the ripple effect. And number four, time is a gift. There was a pastor who was talking on this theme of redeeming the time, and he told this story. He got a football scholarship to play football at Texas Tech, and I think that was a few hundred miles away from where he grew up. And so he and his family, they loaded up, I think it was a Volkswagen van of some kind. They loaded it up. They took off to Texas Tech. They got to Texas Tech. They unloaded all of his stuff. They got his dorm room all set up, and he said his father and his family were getting ready to leave. And he said his dad stood before him at the dorm room, and he was going to give him this sort of farewell speech to his son. 
And he said, his dad said to him, now, son, I want, to, I want you to listen very carefully. This is what your allowance is going to be for this semester. And he gave him this amount of money that he was going to get to, to, to spend that semester. He said it was an unbelievably low number, he said. And so he said very quickly, he was doing math in his head. How much money is that, you know, per month, per week, per meal? You know, not very much. And he said he, his father reached into his pocket, pulled out a $1 bill, and he was pulling this $1 bill tightly in front of him. And he said, son, every time that you reach into your pocket to spend some of this money that I'm giving to you, I want you to think back and remember this conversation that I'm having with you. And he said, every time you reach into your pocket to spend some of this money that I'm giving to you, I want you to spend it wisely because once this money is gone, he said, there will be no more. Meaning dad's not going to give you any more money. If you blow it in the first two weeks, dad's not giving you any more money. This pastor said, I knew my father was as serious as a heart attack. There was not going to be any more money coming from dad if I blow this money. But he said he never forgot that story with his dad in front of him. And it's a great illustration for, for this passage and thinking about redeeming the time. You see, God stands before us and he says, here's this precious time that I'm giving to you. And every time that we reach into our pocket, as it were, to spend some of this time, we want to spend it wisely because once it's gone in this life, there will be no more time. So we want to take that brief bit of time that God gives. We want to redeem it by God's grace. We want to use it for the best and highest purposes. So last time I gave you four ways that we could practically redeem the time. Let me just mention the four real quick and we'll zoom in on one of these. Last time I said, number one, we needed to have an eternal mindset, which Jerry was just getting at. We need to have, number two, a gospel focus. Number three, we need to be word-saturated, which we'll come back to this one in just a moment. And number four, I said we need to spend more time praying and cultivate thanksgiving in our prayers. So let's think about being word-saturated. Again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to flip back to the Old Testament to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, we're going to read the first three verses of Psalm 1 as we think about being word-saturated. Psalm 1, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> Psalm chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. Think about being word-saturated. Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. So we want to prioritize time alone with God. We want to prioritize time in this book. It's certainly one of the more practical ways that we can redeem the time is by spending it in the Word of God, by soaking in the Word of God. There's an author from a few hundred years ago said it like this. He said, time must be found for the spiritual feeding upon scriptural truth, meaning we must make time to feed upon the Word of God. Some of you may remember Chad and Emily Keeter. They were members here a few years ago, and they've since moved to Knoxville, Tennessee. Great couple uh, there with the Navigators. And Chad is the campus director at Knoxville with the Navigator Ministries. They have two children. Caleb is three. Rosie, I think, will be a year old next month. And Liliana and I got to see them about a month ago, and it was great to see them with their two kids. And one of the things that Emily said to Liliana was she was describing sort of her morning routine. Now she's got two young children. She's a busy mom. And she said after breakfast with her two kids, she tells Caleb, who's three, she tells him something like this. She tells him, you can go into the living room and you can play with your toys. You can play with whatever toys you want to, but you need to understand that mommy is going to spend time at the kitchen table in the Word of God. Now you can go and play, do your thing, but mommy must spend time in the Word of God. And she said, of course, Caleb doesn't want to go in there, doesn't want to play with his toys. He comes and stands right beside Emily, wanting her to be done. And some days he even says, mom, you don't have to read the Bible, but I love this from Emily. She's a busy mom, but she knows she must spend time in the Word of God. And I love what she's teaching her children. She's showing her children how important 
it is for her to be in the word of God. This is how we want to be. But notice verse 2. I think it is the key word in verse 2 of Psalm 1. But his delight this is the key word. Delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. You see, we should have this treasuring of the word of God. We should have this delight in the word of God. Because if we have a delight in the word of God, we will make time for that which we delight in. And I was thinking about, you know, grandparents with pictures, maybe thousands of pictures of their grandchildren on their phone. If you go and tell them, make sure you show those pictures to friends of yours. You don't even have to tell them that. They delight to show pictures of their grandchildren to friends. They can show strangers and all of a sudden they get the phone out and they're showing all these pictures because they delight to do it. In the same way, if we delight in the word of God, I don't care how busy we are, we're going to make time for the word of God when we delight in it. Albert Martin is a retired pastor. He was a pastor for 46 years. He was born in 1934. I think he's 87, still living. I think he will be, Lord willing, 88 this year. And he grew up in a Christian home. I'm reading a book by him, about him, and I got this story from, from that book. But he was born in 1934, grew up in a Christian home. He became a Christian at age 18. <clears throat> but before that, in his early teen years, he thought he was a Christian, but he wasn't. So he was a nominal Christian. He was a Christian in name only in those early teen years. And he said he would make time to read the Bible. As a nominal Christian, he read it every day. He would try to read a chapter every single day to sort of appease his conscience. But he said about being a nominal Christian in the Bible, he said the Bible was mere drudgery to him. Now, if you became a Christian later and were exposed to the Bible, you know this from experience. The Bible was drudgery. It was the same with me. The Bible was boring. It was dull. It seemed lifeless to me as a non-Christian. That's what Albert Martin was saying. It was just drudgery. It was just hard work to read. But he would read it a chapter a day. Well, he becomes converted at age 18. A marvelous change. Here's what he says about that change in the word of God. He said, but oh, what a difference when God opened my eyes and brought me out of darkness into light. The word of God became a passionate delight. He had this passionate delight with the word of God when he was converted at 18. He was working for Western Union. This is 1952. He's working for Western Union. He's delivering telegrams. He was riding his sister's bicycle. That's all he had. He's got this girly bike riding around delivering these telegrams. After his conversion, he immediately began to include gospel tracts with every single telegram, essentially, I think. He was giving out these gospel tracts because he had a desire to see people one to Christ. But he began to save his money. He was making 35 cents an hour, 1952. He began to save his money. What's he going to buy? Going to buy faster transportation, maybe a more manly bike? Not yet. He was saving his, his money to buy a specific Bible, a very specific Bible. It was a reference Bible that apparently you can still buy today. But I'm thinking today it would be like a, a really good study Bible is what he's saving up his money for. You see, he's delighted in the Bible. He's reading the Bible. He's really, I don't understand all that I'm reading. I need help understanding and mining the treasures in the Word of God. So I need to save up and I need to buy this reference Bible. So he saved up his money and he was able to buy it. He orders this reference Bible, and he waited for the day to come when that Bible would get there, and all of a sudden the day came, it was in this cardboard box. He said he raced this cardboard box, he ripped this thing open, it was a blue leather Bible, he held it up, he said he gripped it to his chest, and he was filled with gratitude that finally he had this resource that would help him dive into the Word of God. He said for the next two or three years, he said he poured over the Bible. He had a, a marker, a highlighter, he was highlighting and marking it all up, just stayed up late into the night, you couldn't keep him away from the Word of God. Why? Because he had this delight, this desire for the Word of God. But he did say that this excitement and this thrill over the Word of God, it can fade. It can sadly, it can fade. And all of us probably can attest to this. And when that delight and desire fades for the Word of God, we must pray and plead that God would give us the delight, give us the desire, but we still carve out time for the Word of God when we're not delighted. We still keep going to the Word. But we all the while we're praying, Lord, please give me a hunger. Give me a, a delight in your Word. Give me a thirst for your Word. Psalm 119.36, incline my heart to your testimonies, because when that is there and that inclination is there, we're inclined for it, we will make time for the Word of God. And we will not regret, we will not regret time spent in the Word of God. <clears throat> okay, next passage of Scripture, going back to the New Testament, Hebrews 
chapter 10. This will be the fifth overall way that we can redeem the time. First new one of today, Hebrews chapter 10. Before the book of James, Hebrews 10. I'm going to read verses 23 to 25 of Hebrews 10. Then I'll tell you what this way is in just a minute. Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing Near. So the fifth way, practical way that we can redeem the time would be to make use of the community that God has placed you in. Make use of the community that God has placed you in. Or the way I have said it here is, I would say, fold our lives into the community that God has placed us in. Fold our lives into the community that God has placed us in. See, the local church is a wonderful gift of God. I think Mark and I both would, would say that when we first became a Christian, we didn't see the value of the local church then as we do now. All these people we're listening to were talking about the value of the local church, and I just didn't see it. But now I, I see it. I see it in how, how essential it is to our lives is the local church. And I was reading a guy recently who said the local church is sort of made up of believers that God has picked to appear in your life. And he's picked them to appear and to reappear and to reappear and to reappear over and over and over again for our good. He's picked these believers to just constantly be in our lives. So we want to fold our lives into the community that God has placed us in. What does, that, what does that mean? Well, here in Hebrews 10, he says, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we don't want to neglect meeting together. I would say the low bar would be to commit to Sunday afternoon. That's the low bar to step over. We want to make it a priority, if we can, to be here on Sunday afternoons. And I would say, on top of that, to maybe raise the bar just a little bit, what I would say, what I'd encourage you to do is try to get involved in one other thing. Maybe it's Sunday school, if you can go to Sunday school. If you can't go to Sunday school, maybe it's a family group once a month. If you can't do the family group, maybe it's a community group. It's the first and third Thursday, or maybe it's a book club. Try to commit to one other thing. Why? Why is it so important to commit to, to fold your life into the local body of believers? Well, because you're going to be strengthened. You're going to be built up in the faith when you get around other members of this church, when you get around people who, who hate their sin. You get around people who love the Lord, who love the gospel, who want to grow in godliness, who want to see people come to saving faith, who live in light of eternity. It's going to make an impact on you. And the more you rub shoulders with them, the more of an impact it will make on your life. I remember we were talking to Shane and Mallory Allen not too long ago. They've been at our church not even a year yet. And we were talking about our church and the community that we're involved in here. And Mallory was already tearing up. She was just tearing up as she thought about this community of believers that have come around her that she's rubbed shoulders with and how much they love them and how much they love these believers. And that's the experience of anyone who gets involved in a local church body. You will find yourself just having love for people in the church and just being so encouraged and wanting to spend time with the people of God. So a great way to redeem the time is to fold our lives into the community that God has placed us in. So number six, the passage is going to be 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. A little bit to the left here. 1 Timothy 4. Verses 7 and 8. 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. First Timothy 4, Paul writes this in verse 7, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So the sixth overall way is we want to train ourselves 
for godliness. We want to train ourselves for godliness, or the way I put it here was make spiritual fitness a priority. We want to make spiritual fitness a priority. You see, godliness is not going to happen automatically. It requires training. I know I've mentioned Josh Cronick before on this. I'll mention him again. All the muscles that Josh Cronick has, it just didn't happen overnight. There's, there's no way. I mean, it's all kinds of probably blood, sweat, and tears. He's passing out, working out. Lots of years of, of strenuous self-discipline that Cronick has put into that. And I've heard about his Bible boot camp. I've heard about people just talking about this past Monday. Multiple people have thrown up at this Bible boot camp. I mean, Josh Cronick, no joke. I mean, Haley Cronick has said she doesn't even want to work out with Josh. No way. Like too intense. In the same way that we have spiritual muscles, we have spiritual muscles that we must develop and strengthen. One, one pastor said growth and godliness is going to require spiritual sweat. It will require strenuous self-discipline. The question would be how much of our Christian lives is marked by strenuous self-discipline. Alistair Begg in his sermon on 1 Timothy 4, at least one of his sermons on 1 Timothy 4, told this story. He was writing, working on a manuscript. I think he was at a country club because the way he tells this story, there was the Ryder Cup golf team from the United States, which consists of the, basically the best golfers in the United States that particular year. They were practicing, and he would watch them practice from time to time. And he said he would watch them out on the driving range. He said they would hit the same shot over and over and over again for two hours. He said on one particular occasion, he saw one of the members of the Ryder Cup team hitting on the driving range for two hours. This individual then went off and played 18 holes of golf, which maybe takes three hours or so. He said after he finished, he was coming over to the putting green, and Alistair Begg said he was getting ready to take off on a run. So Begg is taking off on this run. So he takes off on this run. He sees this individual going over to the putting green, and he ran for 45 minutes. Begg said he came back, and he got changed and cleaned up. I guess in the dressing room, and then he got ready to go to dinner that night. He said it was about an hour and a half after he had taken off for the run. He's getting ready to leave, and he said he looked down there on the putting green, and there was the same individual standing over the same eight-foot putt. He was putting again and again and again, and Begg just said, here is a man who is absolutely diligent and committed to getting better at the game of golf. Golf for this man was an all-consuming passion. Now, Begg is not saying it's wrong to have a passion for the game of golf. That's not what he's saying. That's not what I'm getting at, but what I am getting at, what Begg is getting at is how often these athletes put us to shame in our own Christian lives with their discipline, with their effort, with their passion. And I would simply just say, are we passionate? Can we honestly say that we're passionate about growing in godliness? I mean, we've been redeemed. We've been purchased. We just talked about it in Ephesians 2 by the blood of Jesus. And now we should want to redeem the time for him. We should want to grow in godliness. When I think about sanctification, so often I'm, I go back to now more and more is Philippians 3.12, at least a portion of it, where Paul says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We press on because Christ has made us his own. That's what propels us out, wanting to, to grow. One author said it like this. He said, pursuing growth and holiness requires an investment of our time, resources, and energy. It must not be approached casually, but requires intentionality, passion, and diligence. One does not drift into greater measures of Christ-likeness. Intentional, spirit-empowered effort must be exerted. It reminds me of a passage in Hebrews 12. I'm just going to read. You don't have to turn there. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. I know Zach Petty loves these verses. I often think of him on this passage. But Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I think when we were going over this maybe almost two years ago, Mark gave this illustration that is just seared in my mind on Hebrews 12 now. Mark talked about a walk-off home run. Now, there's some baseball fans in here. Maybe some people don't like baseball, but here's the idea. A walk-off home run in a baseball game is when the home team is up and the game is either tied 
or they're maybe down by a run or two or three, and it's when the winning run comes to the plate, essentially, and when they hit a home run, bottom half of the ninth inning or bottom half of extra innings, the home team wins the game. That's, that's a walk-off home run, one of the most exciting things that can happen in a baseball game. And Mark found this photographer who takes pictures down the third base line of walk-off home runs. And this particular picture that Mark had found was from a Chicago Cubs game. And this guy is coming around third base, and the whole team is gathered around home plate, and they're all excited. They're getting ready to celebrate and jump up and down and go crazy as this guy is coming around third. And the idea was, you know, this is, this is the idea, is we're running this Christian life. Now, we haven't hit a walk-off home run. The only way we're in the Christian life at all is because Christ Jesus has made us his own. That's why we're running it all. And we're, it's a lot harder the Christian life than running the bases. We've got ups and downs and all kinds of different difficult terrains. But as we run, we are running to a destination. We're running home. And we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. But who's at home plate is Jesus. Where's home is heaven. And as we run, the key piece is we fix our eyes on Jesus. We're focused in on Jesus. We think about the Lord Jesus. We're Christ-centered in our Christian walk. And we remember his hands and feet inside. We remember the cost that he paid. And that propels us out to lay aside these, these weights and sins. I mean, we, we want to get rid of these things that desensitize us to sin or that blur our spiritual vision or stir up our sinful nature. We lay these things aside as we fix our eyes on Jesus. And I love the fact that we're racing home. And I, I love that celebratory aspect of, of the walk-off home run that when we get to home play, Jesus will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And I just love that. It's just so moving to think about that. So we want to fix our eyes on Jesus. As we train ourselves for godliness, we fix our eyes and our gaze on Jesus. And that will help us pursue godliness and make war on sin and, and help us to lay aside those things that trip us up. Okay, last passage for today, Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 1, will be the last passage, number 7 overall, practical way that we can redeem the time. Romans 10, verse 1. Romans 10, 1. <clears throat> Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may <clears throat> be saved. So number seven is we want to cultivate a passion for souls. We want to cultivate a passion for souls. Paul certainly had a passion to see people come to saving faith. Shouldn't we have a passion to see people come to saving faith? I think about Sam and Carrie, their conversion not too long ago, and how wonderful it was to see that. I mean, genuine conversion is such a wonderful thing to see. I think about Thomas Bailey. I don't want to embarrass him, but Thomas became a Christian just a few months ago, and he's been able to come to our book club, and just to see his passion for the Lord, this great change that has happened in his life is an incredible thing to see. And shouldn't we want to see that more and more? Shouldn't we want to be praying that people would come to saving faith? The question would be, how do we cultivate this passion for souls. Well, I think if we're doing those six things that I've already laid out, I think the dominoes will fall and we will have a passion for souls if we're living in a light of eternity, gospel focus, word saturated, etc. If we're doing those things, I think we will have a passion for souls. But another way that it has helped me, at least a little bit, have a passion for soul, souls is reading about people who had a passion for souls. I think of a guy like D.L. Moody. He had a passion to see people come to saving faith. I think, he, I think it was Moody who wanted to talk to at least one person every day about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Moody was just quick-witted. He's funny. There was a guy, I think Marcus told this before, where somebody stopped D.L. Moody on the street and was, said, you know, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way you do evangelism. And D.L. Moody said, I don't really like the way I do evangelism either. How do you do evangelism? He said, well, I don't really do evangelism. He said, well, I like the way I do evangelism a lot better than the way you don't do evangelism. That's just Moody. He's just such an evangelistic heart with D.L. Moody. I think of George Whitfield. He had a passion to see people come 
to saving faith. I was just reading about him last night, and he, he said if he was going to be next to somebody for at least 15 minutes, they were going to hear a word about the Lord Jesus if he was next to them for 15 minutes. He had a passion to see people come to saving faith. He had a friendship with Ben, ben Franklin. I share this in my book club, but just every letter he wrote is a word of Christ. He's urging Ben Franklin. You know, think of the new birth. He's just urging him. He had a passion for souls. But today I want to share from, from the life of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was just as passionate as these two men, had a, just as a passion to see people come to saving faith. And here's what one biographer said about Spurgeon towards the end of his life. He said, despite his steadily worsening physical condition, Spurgeon's zeal for souls remained as warm as ever. He was in a lot of pain at the end of his life, if you know his life. But his passion, his zeal for souls was as warm as ever. And he went to a prayer meeting. This is the most moving part of the biography. This is a dangerous thing for me to share this, most moving part of this biography. But he went to this prayer meeting with other ministers, and they were praying about different themes. I assume they were praying about their churches, praying about maybe the spread of the gospel. But then the theme came that evening. Our children was a the theme. They began to pray for the salvation of their kids, essentially, these godly men. And soon Spurgeon was moved to tears as he listened to these godly men plead for the salvation of their children. And he said this, as they went on entreating the Lord to save their families, my heart seemed ready to burst with strong desire that it might even be so. So then he comes up with this idea at that prayer meeting. He thinks to himself, I will write to those sons and daughters to remind them of their parents' prayers. So as far as we know, he went home, and again, his hand is hurting, it's swollen, likely. He went home and he wrote to all these kids, every single one of them, as far as we know. Here's a portion of one of the letters that he wrote to a young kid who was probably 10 or 12 years old. A young kid named Arthur. He said this, Dear Arthur, you are highly privileged in having parents who pray for you. Your name is known in the courts of heaven. Your case has been laid before the throne of God. Do you not pray for yourself? If you do not do so, why not? If other people value your soul, can it be right for you to neglect it? See, the entreaties and wrestlings of your father will not save you. If you never seek the Lord yourself, you know this. You do not intend to cause grief to dear mother and father, but you do. So long as you are not saved, they can never rest. However obedient and sweet and kind you may be, they will never feel happy about you until you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and so find everlasting salvation. Think of this. Remember how much you have already sinned and none can wash you but Jesus. When you grow up, you may become very sinful and no one can change your nature and make you holy but the Lord Jesus through his spirit. You need what father and mother seek for you and you need it now. Why not seek it at once? I heard a father pray, Lord, save our children and save them young. It is never too soon to be saved, never too soon to be happy, never too soon to be holy. Jesus loves to receive the very young ones. You cannot save yourself, but the great Lord Jesus can save you. Ask him to do it. He that asketh, receiveth. Then trust in Jesus to save you. He can do it, for he died and rose that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Come and tell Jesus you have sinned. Seek forgiveness. Trust in him for it and be sure that you are saved. I pray you think of heaven and hell, for in one of those places you will live forever. Meet me in heaven. Meet me at once at the mercy seat. Run upstairs and pray to the great Father through Jesus Christ. Here's what the biographer says. Undoubtedly, his hand was swollen and probably painful as he held the pen. Yet how worthy were the results. For this letter was used of the Lord to bring young author Lazelle to himself. 
Why would Spurgeon write these letters painful with a swollen hand? Because, you see, Spurgeon had a zeal for souls that was warm as ever. And if we want to redeem the time, it would be wise for us to cultivate the same zeal, the same warmth for souls. So we need to remember the plight from which we have been saved. We need to remember God's grace in saving us. And in light of that, we want to look carefully how we walk. We want to think and plan and pray how best to use the precious time that God gives to us because once that time is gone in this life, it's gone forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us, teach us to number our days, as Mark read earlier, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Help us to, to see the preciousness of time that you give to us. Every time that we reach into our pockets to spend some of this time, Father, may we remember to use it wisely, because once it's gone in this life, it's gone forever. I pray you would give us a deep delight in the Word of God, that we'd have a hunger to spend time with you and your Word every day, that we'd carve out time, that we would have a genuine love, an unquenchable thirst for your Word. I do pray that we would fold our lives into the community that you have placed us in, that we'd see other believers as a precious gift to us, that get to appear, that you pick them to appear and reappear over and over in our lives. And Father, help us to train ourselves to be godly, to As we do that, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to remember his sacrifice and help us to remember that we're racing home to heaven and he'll welcome us home. And may we have a zeal, a genuine warmth for souls that we would have a deep desire to see people one to Christ. I pray even now as we we sing that our worship would be honoring to you and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.